Okay, well, Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Uh, turn there now if you haven't already. And as you're turning, let me begin with a question. What is the benefit of being a Christian? What would you say, somebody asked you that, what's the benefit of being a Christian? And, and what's the cost of being a Christian for that matter? Well, Christian uh, teacher and author, Sean McDowell, who works a lot, uh, especially with students and young people, uh, he says he asks young believers often why they are a Christian. And some of the common answers that he gets from youth are things like, well, I enjoy being a Christian. I enjoy going to youth group. My friends go to youth group. I'm sure that's a really common one, actually. Uh, and, and, and some will say uh, Christianity gives me a sense of purpose in my life. Well, of course, all of, there's, there's something good about all of those things. And yet, all of those answers point to personal benefits um, that those students receive from being Christians in the here and now. And the trouble with that is, as many of you know, because you've lived much longer than teenage years, uh, is that what happens when it's not fun anymore, right? What, what happens in those seasons when nothing about life seems especially enjoyable, that you're just in one of those places? Or what happens when your friends quit coming to youth or to church? Or what happens when they quit being your friends at all? And what happens when you kind of lose your sense of purpose, or it just gets confused by circumstances, what you thought was your purpose in life just sort of falls apart or, or what have you, and it doesn't make sense anymore. Well, we, we run the risk as believers of presenting the gospel this way, you know, thinking about it ourselves in those terms, but presenting the gospel as if it offers a lot of personal benefits in the here and now, and really requires very little of us or demands very little. High benefit, low cost, in other words. Um, but that's not really the way the Bible presents the gospel to us. It's not the way it presents the Christian life, either on the cost or the benefit side, if you will. So I want to talk about that this morning uh, in a message that I've entitled, The Pluses and Minuses of Following Christ. And don't be misled by that title alone. Uh, you know, sort of like reading the headline and commenting before you've even read the article. So don't, don't react to the, uh, the, the title itself. But the pluses and minuses of following Christ. We get a, a glimpse of that from Philippians 3, 1 through 11. So let's, let's look there together now. And I'm going to uh, invite you, if you are willing and able, uh, even though nobody will be uh, holding you accountable for such in your room, but I'll invite you to stand uh, as we listen carefully as the scriptures are read to the voice of God in them. So reading out of the English Standard Version, listen to the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you as always for your word and that it is truth and life to us. You know how much we need that uh, just as human beings on this planet. But somehow we feel in a maybe a special way during this year and this even, even this week that we need to be immersed in truth and in life, the life of the Spirit. And so as we bring all the needs on our hearts, all the cares and concerns with us, everything that you need to speak to and everything we need to hear from you concerning, Lord, would you speak your word by your Spirit through your servant to your people for your glory, for our good always, we ask in Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated if you're standing. Well, we, we took a brief detour from Philippians um, the last couple of weeks as it just kind of spoke into issues surrounding the election. But if you have been with us prior to the last, to, prior to today or prior to the last couple of weeks, you may recall that uh, in the book of Philippians, there have been a couple of recurring themes. As Paul is writing from prison to encourage the church there in Philippi just to continue steadfastly in the faith, couple of things that sort of ring over and over are as he tells them to do, do so with joy, and he tells them to do so with unity. In fact, he goes on to say that, that the route to unity is through humility. The, the only means of achieving unity as the people of God is to be uh, humble toward no, one, one another, not looking out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others, like Jesus did for us, even leaving heaven and coming to earth in the form of man for our salvation. And then we saw uh, Timothy as one uh, model of that, and, um, you know, and Epaphroditus as well. You may recall that. It seems like a whole lot longer than just uh, three weeks ago, at least in my life. But uh, in any case, but those are some of the themes that, that have sort of resonated through Philippians. And then as we pick up here in chapter 3, he, as, he, as he speaks to what I've called the pluses and minuses of following Christ, he actually uh, begins that with a return to this theme of joy by telling us first to rejoice in the gospel. And he's, you, you notice there in verses 1 through 3, or really 1 and 3, uh, he says, and he begins the passage by saying, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. He's, right, he's saying this again, 
number one, to rejoice. He said it over and over and over again. He's also saying um, again to them, as he does to others, a word of warning, which I'll come to in just, just a moment. But, but he says rejoice that we are the circumcision um, in verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit who glory in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. And he says this over against those who would, who would say they, who are Jews or, and, and Judaizers, as they're called, they would insist on circumcision of the flesh being necessary for the Christian as well as for the Jew. He, he, he's saying to, uh, against that, we, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit, who glory in Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And other people are going to tell you that you're unholy because you're not circumcised and you don't keep the law, that you're unworthy uh, of the gospel somehow and being part of the community of faith. And that there are other rules and rituals you need to follow, including circumcision, but also others. He's saying that this, is, this is coming your way. And there might even be a special concern Paul has because he's in prison and he's not there to contend against that himself. He's having to tell the church, you be sure to contend against this. And so he issues this warning to them as he says, rejoice in the gospel, but also watch out, look out, beware. It's translated in a few different ways. Well, look at what he says there in verse, verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. In the, in the Greek here, he, these are three alliterative words. They all, they all begin with uh, the letter K or that hard K sound. And so uh, it, it might sound something like, uh, look out for the canines, for the, uh, the, the crooks and the cutters or something like that. Uh, it, it's not exactly those words, but the, the, but the point is it's, it, it has a sort of uh, hard edge to it. He is not mincing words, in other words. He is not being polite. He's not saying uh, these are just you know, people who have a difference of opinion and we can agree to disagree. He's not, he's not saying that at all. He's saying these people are of another whole gospel and beware of them. They're dogs and evildoers and mutilators. Because with these folks, it wasn't just about circumcision, as I suggested. There's a whole set of other rules you would have to keep in order to attain righteousness in their eyes. They preached a different gospel. That was the crux of the problem. Now, in our day, uh, legalists, don't insist on circumcision most of the time. But there are people, as you, many of you know from experience, that'll insist on uh, other kinds of outward behaviors, if you will. Um, they'll obsess about outward things like clothing or hairstyles or, or, again, just certain places you go and activities you do and that sort of thing. I mean, I, 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 I hear, um, uh, even to this day, I mean, there are some in fundamentalist circles who will obsess about skinny jeans, for example, as being like this symbol of unholiness in the life of a person, or jeans at all on a woman, God forbid, you know, that kind of thing. And again, many of you, many of you have been entrenched in that in times past, and you feel like you've been delivered out of it. But there's that, that sort of thing that's more likely um, to, to touch us in, in the way of legalism in our day. But, but really part of the point is to say, it's always lurking. For the whole history of the church, from the time Paul wrote this to our day, it's always been present. Um, it's always resurfaced in, in slightly different forms 
um, over, over the years or down through the centuries. But like stray dogs, and that's what's interesting about the use of this word in particular, because dogs wouldn't have been house dogs. I mean, the, 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 for the Jews, a dog wouldn't have been like your dog, maybe where the, you know, the, they're in your family photo and on your Christmas card, you know, your pretty little pooch with a bow, you know, up here or something like that. that. That would not be the kind of dog that they're talking about here. We're talking about stray dogs in the street eating, you know, dead birds or trash or that kind of thing. And like stray dogs, they're always lurking around the community somewhere. You might scare them off, but they won't, they won't just go away and never return. They, they will be back. And that's, that's the way legalists are um, if you've encountered them and sort of driven them back. You're not done with that for a lifetime. Uh, the, the word is still watch out, look out, beware. For us right now, in, in, in the contemporary church, our temptation is probably in the other direction. Our temptation is to think you know, legalism is not the answer that, hey, God doesn't really require how I live at all. Uh, we're, we're sort of casting off any sort of law or moral requirement at all, more likely. But, but, but don't, we ought not to feel too confident as if there's not a legalist threat. It's always there barking in the distance somewhere, lurking around the corner. And so beware of that, but rejoice, he says, in the good news of, of God's free grace. And then he says, take your losses, okay? Uh, take your losses. That part of continuing in the gospel is to, is to take your losses. Or these are the minuses, as I suggested in my, in my title. In verses 4 through 7, he lists uh, several things that he mistakenly thought were spiritual assets. And you may have picked up on those um, as we were reading through that. But he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that probably included speaking Hebrew, reading Hebrew and Aramaic. You know, he was, he was the real deal. Um, he was a Pharisee. We know of them some from the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus. But these would have been folks with uh, really high moral standards, especially high moral standards for other people. They were probably a little more forgiving of themselves than they were for others. But, but the, the, the reputation they had is that these, these people are rigorous and disciplined morally in their faith. And so uh, as concerning the law, he's a Pharisee. That's, that's the seriousness with which he took obedience to the law. He says he's a zealous persecutor of the church. You remember that about his background. He was so committed to his faith that he wanted permission to go drag Christians back to the court, as it were, in Jerusalem, back to, to, to sort of be on trial, to stand before hearings about how they've disrupted uh, the Jewish community with this, these Christian claims. He was a zealous persecutor and blameless keeper of the law. That's, that's his background. That's his resume. Um, what, what, what it was that he would have considered to be spiritual assets. And what value did those things presumably have? Well, if you think about it, there's a, there's a family pedigree here. And here's where we might begin to relate to this some, because again, all those things aren't necessarily true of us uh, on the surface as far as Jewish expressions per se. But there's a certainly, certain family pedigree that he comes from the right kind of family, both 
uh, mother and father of a uh, of Jewish descent who would have taken him on the eighth day to be circumcised, for example. Um, it had the value of just achievement that he, that he has been a, um, a good Jew, as it were, a good Pharisee. He's been noticed. He's been recognized as being zealous. If, if he were you know, if he were a scout, he'd have all the, you know, the badges and the patches, medals and ribbons and all that kind of stuff hanging from his vest. He's got all of the achievements in that way. He's got a certain claim, he would think, to self-righteousness because he is such a blameless keeper of the law, so morally disciplined. He enjoys a, a, a good measure of acceptance and admiration by the community that he's a part of. And he's He's educated in the right school. You know, so you think about people, um, even in our country, I always think of, when I'm thinking of this sort of thing, I think of somebody like who's from the Kennedy family, who for whatever reason, and even those that don't really have any particular um, uh, affection or even know much about them, there has been, uh, at least in, in generations past, a certain mystique about that family. You know, so they, they come from this family with this reputable pedigree and they, they, you know, they go to the right universities in the Northeast and they have these political connections where they're mentored and trained by reputable people and so on and so forth. I say that just because this is the kind of resume that Paul had. This is the kind of regard that he had. He's, he's gone to the right schools. He comes from the right kind of family, the right kind of upbringing and influences and all the right achievements. All of that's part of who he is. But then he says, whatever, whatever gain I had, whatever gain that represented, I count as loss. What I thought were pluses were actually minuses. What I thought were spiritual pluses to my account were actually minuses. Let me see if I can illustrate this concept so we can appreciate the fullness of what's being said here. Uh, imagine that you are kind of listing assets and liabilities for some purpose or whatever, um, you know, sort of laying out what your net worth is. And so what do you own that's of value and what debts do you have and so forth and how all those balance out. And you imagine that you assume your home's value is an asset, that your home is an asset. You list that only to discover in the process that your home is sitting on top of a toxic waste site that you didn't know about, that underground somehow there's toxic waste that's been buried, that's been discovered. And not only that, but the house itself was built with asbestos siding and asbestos flooring and, you know, tile on the backsplash of your, of your kitchen and in your bathrooms and that kind of thing. And so you're now responsible for disposing of all that asbestos in uh, an environmentally responsible way, kind of following the legal requirements of the remediation of that asbestos. Well, what's happened? All, all of a sudden, not only does your property not have any value because it's on a toxic waste site, it, it actually is going to cost you a boatload of money to dispose of all that asbestos. Your house, it turns out, is not an asset. It's a liability. It's not a, it doesn't belong in the plus column. It's in the minus column. 
That's, the, that's part of the experience here that Paul is getting at. The, all these things that he mentioned, like if, if, they, if people think they've got reason to be confident in the flesh, I've got reason to be confident in the flesh, let me tell you about it. And he lists all these things, but what he recognizes is the very fact that he placed confidence in the flesh made it a liability. Okay, the, the, very, the very fact that that's where his confidence is is what, is what makes it a liability rather than an asset. His own merit was not only worthless to him, it, was, it had negative value in his life, dragging him down. It's like, it's like instead of reaching for a life ring to save yourself from drowning, you reach for the anchor and it drags you to the bottom of the sea. And so maybe uh, many of us can relate on a, on a, a certain level with this, this idea of, like, of a person like Paul being raised in, in the community of faith, you be, being raised by parents who, uh, again, although not Jewish, uh, maybe we're ra- raised in a Christian home, but we're, we, we have the right parental background, we come from the right family, um, that we're, you know, we, we went to church every time the building was opened, we learned the Bible stories, we memorized the Bible verses, you know, you behaved um, like you understood a Christian was supposed to behave, and uh, that, that's the path that you followed, you just, you just sort of walked the walk morally like you understood uh, Christians are supposed to do, and maybe even enter into adulthood, you repeated that pattern in your own family, and your family went to church, and you, and you got involved as an adult, serving in the church in different capacities, and giving, and so on and so forth. The story for a lot of believers is that consciously or unconsciously, doing all of those things we think is accumulating for us spiritual assets, that somehow we're, we're racking up favor with God. Again, this is probably more unconscious than conscious, especially in Protestant circles, because we hear otherwise. But we live as if all of those acts of obedience stack up spiritual assets for us. And obedience is necessary. Obedience is absolutely necessary. But obeying God is how we enjoy his favor, not how we earn it. Obeying God is how we enjoy his favor, not how we earn it. And so if you think that your obedience and compliance are assets that have earned you good standing with God, that's what actually makes them liabilities. Okay, that itself makes them liabilities. And then you have to, you have to actually like Paul, decide to count them as liabilities. We move them out of the asset column over into the liability column to make room for the one singular asset uh, that actually matters. We have to be uh, surrender all of those, uh, credit, count all of those as liabilities and live a life that's really surrendered to him. And so that leads us to uh, the third thing here, which is, counting the gains. We're to, we're to uh, take our losses, but then also to count the gains. These are the pluses. So what, whatever I may have regarded as spiritual credits to my account, I consider them rubbish. It's, it's not only 
an accounting transaction here to move it from the asset column to the liability column, to move it from a credit column to the debit column, but it is to regard them as rubbish. Uh, and for what purpose? For the, for the sake of one single gain. All the things that we would have, all the things we would list in the asset column. We move over to the liability column and there's just one entry that replaces them and that is Christ. Look at verse 8. He actually says this um, a few times. In fact, let me back up. We'll look at uh, verse 7 to lead us into 8 and following. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says in three or four different ways that Christ is the reason why I count all things as loss and that I suffer the loss of those things. Whatever that advantage those may have had in worldly terms, there, there was a certain advantage to those family connections, those um, you know, community connections, and so on and so forth. So, um, in any event, he does that for the sake of Christ. And he says that in him, I receive his righteousness, not my own. I know him. I know the power of his resurrection. I share in his sufferings. I become like him in his death, so that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Um, and not all of that sounds like benefits, does it? Because uh, Christ secured our salvation through his suffering and death, and we don't lay hold of those without uh, sharing with him in his suffering and death as well. That what's listed in this list of benefits is, is suffering with him and dying with him. And this is kind of a foreign concept to us because as Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when, a man, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. As uh, Matthew 16, 24 and 25 uh, says, out of the mouth of Jesus, J Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's the cost of following Jesus? It's your life and mine. It is dying to self. It's not a matter of exchanging the old self that you don't like for the new self that you prefer. It is dying to self altogether. We're called to that if we're going to follow Christ, counting everything as loss, even our very lives. Uh, a couple of years ago, I shared about Helen Rosevere, and I'll conclude with this little story, but she uh, would eventually become a medical doctor and uh, a medical missionary in the Belgian Congo for 20 years. But before that, she was actually an unbeliever as a student, even though she had been raised around the church. She was a, a university student in England. And during that time, she became involved in some Bible studies and prayer meetings as part of a Christian student organization. And she came to personal faith in Christ through that association. And on one night, on the night of her conversion, uh, 
she, she came to faith in Christ. She was talking with the conference speaker who had been speaking that night, and he gave her a Bible and wrote a little scripture reference on the inside cover, and it was Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And the speaker quoted that verse as he handed her the Bible and then said to her, tonight you've entered into the first part of that verse, that I may know him. My prayer for you is that you will go on to know the power of his resurrection. And also, God willing, perhaps one day you'll have the privilege of knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. The privilege. And Dr. Roseville, when she tells her testimony, points out she had been a Christian about half an hour. And somebody was already telling her it would be a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Well, when she went to the mission field, she did suffer to a degree that would be almost unimaginable, um, probably utterly unimaginable to most of us. In the early 1960s, it was a terrible upheaval, a rebellion of sorts in the Congo. Many missionaries and other aid workers and that kind of thing fled the country. Many others were killed. Dr. Rosevear herself was brutally beaten and raped. And in that very hour, as it was an extended period of time as an experience for her. She was reminded in that very hour that it was a privilege to share in Christ's suffering. And God graciously led her through and out of that experience. Well, as I said, that's a foreign concept for us, but really a helpful um, perspective check that we would, that we would be provoked by the very notion that suffering with Jesus goes in the uh, benefits list, the, part, the, the, the privilege list, that we have the privilege of suffering with Jesus. And you know, one of my great concerns is there are church people full um, of people. There are churches full of people who have accumulated spiritual assets, so to speak, like, like the one I, uh, ones I mentioned earlier. They have confidence in their own merits. And what's, what's actually even worse than that is those who have that list of merits and they just added to it the sinner's prayer. Somebody told them somewhere along the way at the end of the service, you need to come down front while we sing the first, third, and fourth stanzas of Just As I Am, and you need to come, and the minister will lead you in this prayer. And as soon as you say amen at the end of that prayer, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you're going to heaven. And I'm, I'm overstating that a little bit, but not, but not too much, only a little bit. And I've heard it more times than I can count. Many of you have too. And there are lots of people who really, through that same sort of exercise, came to genuine faith in Jesus. But there are lots and lots of others, I feel quite sure, who just added to the list of their own merits now a prayer, supposedly is what's going to get them to, into heaven. And they, they have laid hold of the anchor rather than the life ring. And uh, my uh, urgent message to you today would be, if that, if that is true of you, if that has any resonance of truth to you, uh, that today you really, really surrender to Jesus and say, Lord, my life is yours. Are you willing to die to self? Are you willing to count everything as loss? In, in a, an hour where in the days leading up to this election, many people are in a sense very concerned about what may be lost by the outcome of this election. And maybe one of the relevant questions to us would be, 
Are you willing to lose even that for the sake of Christ? Is everything that is of value to you, everything that's been revealed to you uh, in, in this year that's of value to you in your heart more than you realize, are you willing to count it all as loss and to come and die to self as you, as you share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and in his death because you've gained him and he is everything. My prayer is by the, the grace of God that would be brought home to you and you'll respond accordingly. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, thank you for this reminder in your word and for um, uh, the truth that we have in Christ alone, we have more assets, more benefits than we can even number. Um, they are countless and they are glorious and they are eternal. So Lord, but I, I pray that you would shift hearts um, to be willing to say all the things that I would count as gain, my own spiritual attainments, but also of family and relationships and admiration and respect and achievement and community, all of those things that I, that I would count it all as loss and suffer the loss of all those things for the sake of Jesus. Lord, would you give us such a deep love for him uh, that we would respond fully and sacrificially in those ways. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.